Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Hello and welcome to the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club podcast. Um, today is our 29th session. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And I'm Dave Tushingham. Today we're going to be talking with Craig Barton about his book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, Sequences and Behaviour to Enable Mathematical Thinking in the Classroom. Let's get stuck in. Good afternoon and welcome to another GLT book club session. Um, I think it's our 29th today and we are very, 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 very excited as to who our guest is, who's going to be joining us. So as always, um, thank you very much to those of you who are in the room and thank you very much to those who are listening afterwards. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce Craig Barton and I'm going to uh, mainly refer to his bio to help me with this one because otherwise I could just wax lyrical for the entire hour and that's mainly just with thanking him for everything that he's been able to do to help me on my own journey professionally let alone what what the whole purpose of this um, session is for and then I'll hand over to Dave who will then talk about the why behind why we chose this book and the specific section and um, before handing over to have the opportunity to listen to Craig I'm also hugely pleased that we have Matt Hussey in the room as well. He's going to be doing another takeaway for us. He did one for us um, in one of our previous sessions as well. So I'm, I'm saying that now, Matt, so I don't forget to bring you in later on. OK, so if I do, uh, wave and remind me and I'll make sure that it happens. So Craig Barton. Wow. Um, I think that that could almost do it in its own right, really, but that, that, that's not fair in a sense either, because everybody else has had far more words than that one. So he's been, you've been teaching maths for over 15 years now. You're the head of education at ED, which is, I always like it when those emails come through, because they're a real um, good opportunity for me to reflect and look at the, what you and your team are working on. So thank you very much for that. You're the TES Maths Advisor, author of the best-selling How I'd Wish I'd Taught Maths, which I must admit is that book that's on every office shelf that I go into. And whenever we're talking anything about maths or lessons or structure or ideas, that's our first go-to to open it up and uh, as a gateway to looking at more ideas. So thank you so much for that one. You're the host of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast, um, which is, I think, my most listened to podcast of all time. I listen to that one all the time. Thank you so much for that one. The creator of MrBartonMath.com, DiagnosticQuestions.com, which we use all the time, VariationTheory.com, which I use as my first go-to for all of my lessons, SSDD Problems, MathsFens, and there's just so much that we are grateful to you for and thankful for. And in addition to that, you're also a father and a husband too. And we mustn't forget that one. That's not an also, that one comes first. And I like the way that that was included in your bio. So just thank you, Craig. And thank you once again for your time today. This is going to be utterly priceless. And one of those that I think I will just remember forever. So Dave, could you please save me now? I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Ray. And, and again, thank you, Craig, for joining us today. I'm really excited about the session. Um, 
the the reason why we chose this book um quite ironically was um uh, was based on on your other book of how i wish i'd taught maths um where i'm i, I pride myself personally on being someone that would uh, read positively um but i would read critically as well and want to sort of challenge and think why why is what I'm reading um, actually true? Is it true? What's the validity of what I'm, what I'm seeing here? Um, and very quickly after reading that book, it became a little bit of an instruction manual um, for me personally. And I very quickly realized that a lot of teachers around me as well were doing very similar. And, and there was this real sort of change in the way that we saw um, math lessons. Um, and, and so that was, that was the book that I really wanted to talk to you about. Um, but after sort of 12 months or so, um, of teaching, it, it started to sort of uh, become habit, become more ingrained, some of the, the sort of thoughts and processes that are in that book. Um, and, uh, and I started to question a little bit more about, well, well, how do we go a little bit deeper here? How do we get the students to really think around some of these sort of modelled um, examples that we're delivering? Um, the, the variation theory is brilliant. How do we get them to really start to see these links? Because I know what I want to do, but it's not quite happening yet. And, and it's just a part of that journey and process. And then this, this book came out, this second book of Reflect, Expect, Check and Explain, uh, which, uh, by the way, I find the title, I've always got to double check that title and make sure I get it in the right order. But at the same time, it really makes me think about well what is the the correct process in order to, to get these students to really understand and it's important to to sort of deeply understand that myself um as i'm as i'm reading this book i'm, I'm really starting to, to get it starting to understand what it is we need to do to help these students to, to really gain a deeper understanding of mathematics um, and I think it's just such a priceless book for us to be looking at because um, there have been so many sort of excellent math, math authors that have joined us across the year. Um, and, and your book, um, for me, seems to sort of overarch all of the, the very specific sort of atoms, if you like. Um, so, for example, Peter Mattock, who looked at visible mass. Um, we've got um, Gemma Sherwood um, and uh, with her, her subject knowledge. And, and each one of those is sort of um, touched upon in your book and, and sort of comes into this sort of all-encompassing holistic picture for me of this is how um, you should and, and could and, and maybe would teach maths um, well. And, and so that just made me think, well, well, this is the book that we'd like to discuss. Um, and, and so we picked a specific extract um, after a session with Michael Pershing, we were looking at silent teacher um, and modeling with him. Um, and it was just uh, seemed the perfect extract to share because um, it's one of those um, sort of areas where, where there's a, a lot of thinking behind it. There's a lot of uh, opinion behind it. There's a lot of thought about um, sort of when you should use it, um, how you should use it, if you should use it. And, and it just um, it just seemed like one of those things I'd love to dig just a little bit deeper on myself personally. Um, so, so that's why we chose that particular part of the book. I um, just find it fascinating, find it so interesting. Um, and, and so rather than me sort of talking because people are here to listen to you, Craig, um, I just want to hand over to you now just say thank you so much again for joining us and, and whether there's sort of anything that you wanted to share about why you wrote the book or your thoughts behind it yourself. Perfect. Well, that's an incredibly kind uh, introduction, uh, Dave and Rhiannon. Thank you so much. This will be a huge anticlimax, uh, what's going to follow now. Um, so, yeah, a bit of background on, on the book. It was it was always a tricky one. I was always going to write a second book because what was interesting about writing the first one when I wrote How Wish I Taught Math and was lucky enough that the book did pretty well and it, it crossed the divide even into other subjects and um, went into primary level as well 
was that once a book like that's out there, people then have an opportunity to get their hands on it and try out the ideas. And what was fascinating is when I was lucky enough to visit schools all, all around the country and all around the world, I got to see firsthand people who'd taken my very simple ideas that I'd explained in that book, but found ways to make them work for them, ways that I could never have, have, have imagined. And I also saw things that simply didn't work or things that needed changing or things that would um, could be done a lot better. So having put the book out, I, for the next 18 months, I was seeing all these things in every school I visited. I had my phone with me to take pictures. I was writing notes. I was learning far more from, from everyone else than they were, they were learning from me. And all these ideas were coming together. And I thought, okay, right. Okay. This, this definitely feels like, a, like a, another book I could get out of it. But then the dilemma was, I then started getting obsessed with variation theory. And I talk about this very briefly in how I wish I taught maths, but I got really, really obsessed with it. And I read absolutely everything uh, that I could on it. And I thought, you know what, there's a, there's a really nice way to make this work in mathematics that perhaps is separate from pure variation theory. And I get slagged off left, right and center for, for calling what I do variation theory. But, but I just saw something in that, in that white, whole encompassing theory that I thought, okay, this can be used to help students practice something, get that procedural fluency, but also do something a bit more interesting, notice relationships and so on. But then I had the big dilemma. <laughs> I spoke to my publishers about this. That there was kind of two books going on here. I kind of wanted to do a book that reflected on everything I'd learned about how people took the ideas from how I taught maths and applied them. But then I also, I just wanted to write about variation. I was obsessed with this. So I thought I can stick them together in, in one book because the more I thought about this notion of reflect, expect, check, explain. And I'll tell you what, Dave, it's interesting you said at the start, you have to look at what order it is. So do I. I'd say it's the worst title. I don't know what I was thinking with this. It is the least catchy title you've ever heard in your life. But anyway, we'll, we'll we'll come back to that so i started thinking this 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 notion of reflect expect check explain not only can it be applied be applied to how i think students could work through these sequences of, of questions that I, I use on my variation theory website but also it's a useful way of thinking about worked examples whenever silent teachers happening or narrations happening whatever it may be this notion of reflecting what have you noticed what do you think is going to happen does it happen do you understand why so it could definitely be applied to worked examples. And the more I thought about it, it's quite a useful framework for, for doing mathematics just in general, whether it's problem solving or whatever. So I spoke to my publishers and I said, right, we're in a bit of trouble here because this book is going to be absolutely flipping massive. But the, the thing that was in my favor, but on reflection, it's not a good thing was my first book was massive and my publishers tried to split that into two. But I really fought hard because I thought, no, this is a complete story. This, this is the complete story of my failure over 12 years of teaching and what I've learned now. So they gave me a chance on that. Because that book did really well, they, they weren't really bothered. They were just saying yes to everything I said. So I could have trebled this book in size if I wanted to and nobody would have been even able to pick it up. But on reflection, it probably would have worked better as two separate books. Because I, again, if, you, if you've read the book, chapter two is a book in itself. Like chapter two is over a hundred thousand pages. You know, it's, uh, sorry, hundred, <laughs> no, that would be too big. Hundred thousand words, which is bigger than most, most education books on it. So that's one, one chapter of the thing. So, um, yeah, it was a big, it was a big old effort to write it. I was so excited to write it. It's part reflection on what I'd learned over the last 18 months of reflecting on how wish I taught maths and then part my obsession with this way of sequencing examples and practice questions and demonstrations to help students notice things and, and hopefully learn and, and, and enjoy mathematics and, and a lot better. So that was the kind of thinking behind the book but it was tricky to write for a number of reasons. One was that 
again, it was trying to wrestle with this theory and try and find a way to, to make it as practical. I wanted to make it so a teacher could pick it up, read it and know exactly, not agree with me, but know exactly what it looks like in my classroom. So there's a lot of dialogue in there. I say this and the pupils may say this and so on and so forth. So I, that, that took a lot of, lot of kind of care trying to get that right. But also, and I think I mentioned this in, in the intro, it was a nightmare to write because I knew people would hate it. I knew there would be a group of people for whom this would be the worst thing that they've ever read in their life. And so that was always in the back of my mind. When I write this, they're going to say this. So can I write it in a way that they don't say this? And how would I respond and so on? But yeah, so it was, it was, it was a lot of internal conflict going on, uh, kind of writing the thing. It wasn't as fun to write as um, how I wish I taught maths. But yeah, I'm glad I write it. <laughs> but I'll tell you the other thing before I shut up for a sec is worst timing ever for, to put a book out, right? So I put this book out in end of February 2020. And I'm ready to go on this book tour promoting the thing. And then to make matters worse, um, from my publisher, I can buy copies at cost price. So I could buy them for like six quid or whatever and then sell them for whatever. So I've got, this is no word of a lie. I've still in my boots of my car. I've got 40 copies of this flipping book signed, ready to go. Nobody wants them. I can't even give them to me dad or my mom because obviously the tour got canceled. COVID happened, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, it was an interesting time to put out a book, but fortunately quite a few people seem to seem to have read it, but it's definitely not as well received as the first. And I don't know whether that's your natural thing of difficult second album or whether it's, I don't know, it's, it's not as good or there's, the ideas are more controversial, it's more confrontational, I don't know, but it, it fascinates me, the reception of this book, certainly compared to previous ones. Anyway, I've, that, that, that's a bit of background then, if that's, if that's at all useful. It's absolutely brilliant, Craig. And uh, well, I mean, for me, thank you so much for writing it because I've got so much from it for the ideas. But um, I think Doug Lemos said in one of the sessions that if people are challenging, um, as he's found with his Teach Like a Champion techniques, um, those ideas, then at least that dialogue is out there that people are talking about the mathematics and how you might teach it. And it's making people think about whether those ideas that are in that book are good ideas to use. Now, I, for me, I think that there's so much in that book. Um, I can see why the first one might be more popular, even more popular because it sets out the store. It has everything in it that teaches um, us teachers on how we need to, to maybe uh, function in that classroom to, to have um, successful learning happening at pace. Um, the second book was absolutely essential for me to be able to answer that question. And I think that um, there's so many people that are so grateful for, for that text. So, so yeah, it, I think it's a wonderful, um, wonderful read. And we'd certainly take one of those books off you, Craig. You, know, you can't get rid <laughs> Will of you take off. three? Will yeah, you take yeah, three? Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so the extra that we shared, as I said, was about Silent Teacher. Um, and I just wanted to talk just a, a little bit more maybe about um, sort of your thoughts behind the silent teacher, where it's come from, um, what the, the maybe the, the limitations and, and the successes are um, within using the silent teacher, because I've used it a lot and, and I'm finding myself, and, and please correct me if you think oh, maybe that's not the way that, that I'm imagining this being interpreted, or, or maybe you could use this in better ways, but I will find with particular classes, I will want to narrate, I want to make sure they got that extra scaffold. And with certain classes, I would deliberately want to not talk so that they have that space to think. And um, and it can depend sometimes on the topic or the class, um, but I, I'm certainly in a place where every lesson I'm going in and thinking, do I want silent teacher? How much do I want to use this? And, and I guess just understanding it a bit deeper would really help me with those decision-making processes. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to choose to talk about, Dave. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this because 
It was one of the more, um, again, controversial aspects of, of my first book um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, some people just, just didn't like the idea of, of teacher kind of not talking in that way. And again, it can be, if you've listeners have, um, have tried it, when delivering work examples, it can be quite a strange experience for the teacher and the student, particularly if they're not used to it. It's also one of those ideas that's been around hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, the idea of a teacher being silent and, and, and the students noticing things and so on. But what I wanted to do, particularly in the first book, was try and formalize this as, as a building into a kind of a model or a framework, uh, in this case, for, for delivering work examples. Because I'm a big believer in, in routines and I'm a big believer in if you're going to come up with an idea or a technique, you want to get a lot of value out of it. it you want to, it wants to be something that you can use time and time again, not just a one-off thing. So, so the notion of, of developing this routine for doing the worked examples first in silence, then narration, then students studying the worked example and so on. It felt like something that if the teacher invested time into getting used to it themselves and, and the students invested time into getting used to it, everyone could get quite a lot out of it because it's something that we could repeat lesson after lesson, topic after topic and, and, and so on. But um, as I said, well, I'll tell you one extra thing before I just go a little bit deeper in this. One, one, one thing that has fascinated me. So over, of course, the last 18 months, online learning has been something or remote, remote teaching has been something that's kind of has sprung up and teachers have had to grapple with. Silent teachers are really interesting one there. So for listeners who aren't aware, the, the, the kind of general principle of, of how I use silent teacher when I'm doing worked examples is that the first time I would present a worked example to students, I would to use Michael Pershing's phrase, who's a previous guest on, on your wonderful book club, is I roll it out, I roll out the example. So what that means is the example will be on the left-hand side of the board, the question, and then I will write a line and I will pause, and then I will perhaps draw students' attention to something by, by pointing to it, and then I'll write another line and pause and so on. And the idea here is to, to kind of bring it back to reflect, expect, check, explain, is that the student reflects on what I've just done, forms an expectation about what I may do next, then watches me do that thing, and then has to try and reconcile what's happened. If it's what they expected to happen, do they understand why? Could they explain it to somebody else? If what's happened to surprise them, now that they've seen what I've done, can they figure out why I've done it? So it's this, this, pro, this process to hopefully try and make the worked example a bit more engaging as opposed to it being a very passive experience where students either just watch the teacher or worse, what I did for many years, they try and scribble down notes whilst trying to watch the teacher and listen to them and, and, and so on. So that's the general idea behind Silent Teacher. But what was interesting is, so I learned a lot of things over the last, over the 18 months since How Wish I Taught Maths came out and when I started writing Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain. And that is, as you say, Dave, often you don't want to use it. It feels, it, it feels sometimes like narration needs to come alongside what's happening. And you get the sense sometimes from students are like, what the hell are you doing there? Just tell me, just tell me what you're doing. And I don't forget, I got a phone call from a, from a parent when I first started using Silent Teacher. And it was Rachel, the girl was called, and, and Rachel's mum was on the phone saying, Rachel says you don't speak to the class anymore. What's what's going on here? And I was trying to, and again, it, again, there's a whole wider point there about trying to, you've got to explain to kids why you're doing the things that you're doing and, and so on. So I, I learned a couple of things with Silent Teacher. First, it, it just before COVID happened, and that was there are times when actually it makes sense to narrate. And that may be because you know, you know the class, or it may even be kind of the time of the day where they can't, they don't have that concentration. Actually, they need that extra verbal support and so on. Or it may be topic specific, or it may be, um, again, the, the teacher's style or whatever. There are times when 
actually fusing together the silent teacher and the narration, perhaps doing a, a line in silence, then pausing and then saying, okay, let's talk about this line, as opposed to rolling out the whole example. That actually, that, that, that seems to work a bit better. But what I find fascinating was whenever online teaching and, and remote learning happened, I thought, well, this is perfect. This is perfectly made for silent teacher because the students were all learning, were all at home, potentially in really busy, noisy environments, whether it's visually or auditory noise going on and so on. They perhaps didn't have that controlled environment of the classroom. So actually, surely removing one extra stimulus, the speaking, and allowing them to focus on what was happening on the screen would be perfect. But it was an absolute disaster. The teachers, and I tried this myself, just didn't work. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think the presence of the teacher in terms of gestures is so, so, so important. The teacher being at the board and gesturing about specifically where kids' attention should be, but also just that, that power teachers have, this kind of unconscious power to know when the kids are concentrating, just to be able to kind of look around the room, get a sense of pace is particularly important. When, when am I ready to move on to the next line? When is that penny dropped in the kids' minds? And whenever you're doing a lesson on Zoom or Teams or whatever, you, you just couldn't replicate that. That was that. So it was an absolute disaster. And I'll, I'll tell you where it doesn't work either. And this is a bit of inside information for you. So Eddie, you mentioned Edie uh, before in, in the introduction. So I, I work for Edie Diagnostic Questions and so on. And we've been producing um, supporting materials for, for students to do a bit of kind of independent learning and so on. And as part of that, I thought, well, let's do silent teacher. So the idea here is where, um, let's say kids want to revise, I don't know, repeated percentages or something like that. You can go watch a worked example, example problem pair on repeated percentages. And the first time the kids see it, it's silent teacher. It's, it's being rolled out. And to try and replicate the gestures, you can use like the PowerPoint, like highlighter tool or the, you know, all that kind of thing. But the kids hate it. They absolutely hate it. And I don't know whether it's, as I say, it just doesn't work in person or whether there's something about watching something on a screen. You need the audio with it just because we're so ingrained to, to watching videos with sound. I don't know. So having written about Silent Teacher in the first book, the, How I Should Talk Master, the things I've really reflected on are that it shouldn't be a blueprint to do every single words example, that sometimes interspersing silence with narration and breaking it up that way really, really works. And just like anything, one size doesn't fit all, but also in terms of online learning, it's, it's, it's a flipping disaster. It really doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to hit home. So that's, yeah, I'll, I'll shut up for a second there. There's, um, I'll also, I'll talk about the importance of silence in terms of kids working through problems, particularly variation, uh, intelligent practice sequences, um, whenever that's appropriate. But yeah, I'll, I'll just pause there. That, that's a few things about Silent Teacher, if that makes sense. No, that's brilliant. And I'll say, so uh, I think I'll start by saying, I had no idea that there was this controversy and, and these mm. challenges to, to what had been raised in your book. I think I was um, really naive about that because I came onto Twitter relatively recently so I, I'm glad I missed all of that because <laughs> it was it, it's, it's just such a shame isn't it that, it that it's moved that way and I also yeah. I think I put something out the other day I tend to delete more of my tweets now before yeah, I post yeah. them than actually tweet them yeah, yeah, just yeah. in case um, so uh, once again thank you for writing this and also um, I found it really hard it's taken me time to get my head around the whole idea of silent teacher because 
it's so different to anything that I'd done. Mm. And I'd read it and I looked at it and I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not quite yeah. sure about that. But actually it was with, with Matt mainly. And, and I'll, I'll bring you in if, if that's all right, Matt, and, and just mention a little yeah. bit. So what we did with, with a lot of your work is we've put together across a number of our schools. We're trying to look at what are some really um, helpful, successful structures to utilize and not saying this is exactly how you have to yeah. do it all the time but these are some just some suggestions and some ideas to consider and and how could they best be implement, implemented or tried in your classroom or in your team and then just help that create that consistency and and when i talk about consistency it's like you starting with a glossary in your book it's so that we're all talking about the yeah. same thing and we're referencing the same thing all of the time. So there's that clarity of understanding. Yes. And it was in, in your department, wasn't it, Matt, when we had a look around and we thought, actually, si could silent teacher here play a pivotal role in, in, a, in, a part, in, in the structure of the lesson and, and how to make the most of it? Because I find when I'm at home now, more than ever, if I'm thinking hard, I turn everything off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's silence around me. I, I, I can't even have any music on in the background. So when you're mentioning there that there are some times where it might be more useful than others in the classroom, I was just wondering, Matt, because you and yeah. your team are using it live right now, and you have been for where well, it was in the summer term, wasn't it? That we it made a concerted effort to to try it and see how it was going. I just wondered if you had anything to bring in on that. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think um, for us, and I, I kind of mimic what you said a second ago, Craig. Like our initial sort of expectation about, look, we're going to introduce um, this sort of silent modelling, um, and it and it all it is it's quite theatrical. Uh, there, there are lots of gestures, there are lots of exaggerations, and I think we kind of, as a team, had you know originally we were perhaps just doing it like we would work through a normal problem and 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 not really reference those key points and things. And I think through sort of watching each other and, and looking at each other deliver those sessions it became apparent that actually the, the best examples of those were the kind of slowing the pace down stopping looking around the room sort of yeah. arching your eyebrows and kind of yeah, making yeah. those big wide gestures and i'll be honest and, I, and my team would be it felt really uncomfortable at first it felt like this kind of new strange thing and you know we were introducing these kind of models of excellence and why were we and, and actually over time, we, we've really seen the value of that because students completely understand what to expect from that now. And, you know, you said about that, that phone call you had with that parent. Well, we had that, we had that, but I also had that from above as well going, yeah, we've walked into these rooms and everyone is, we're, we're, I'm watching these mime acts sort of play out in front of me, yeah, yeah. you know, and so we made this sort of effort to sort of present, um, I guess, sort of out, but also above to say, this is kind of what we're doing and, and this is how we're going to make this look. And, and you find that the students now fully, they understand completely what's about to happen, you know, so they're, they're trained now to sort of watch and to be observant. It's not something that's, it, the, the silent example is not something that's happening to them. They're part of that yes. process. And that's really important. I think for us, we probably missed that to begin with. It was kind of a, a you're going to do this in silence because silent narration is great. Whereas now it's become a, a joint experience to sort of bring them into that. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's funny listening to some of your things. I feel like we've had that in kind of a maybe an 18 week cycle. We've had that 18 months that you had of those learning curves. Of, yes. of what happened. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting to, to hear that, those mm. experiences. Cause I, I'll tell you something else I've noticed. And again, may, maybe this is just from, from speaking to, to certain teachers. That I don't know whether this is widespread. But what I also find interesting about, about silent teacher is that sometimes the first time you do it, it can go 
fairly well because the, the kids they because they don't know what to expect you you um, expect you almost get a bit of a honeymoon period when you when you introduce a, a new thing with kids because it's so weird sometimes that they're like they, they don't they almost don't play up because they're, they're just like what the hell's going on here this will take me a bit of a while just to get my head around it then it starts to go downhill the next few times you try it whenever that it's no longer new and exciting but it's not yet ingrained enough in their routines and they don't know how to be active participants as you explained to find it useful so it's just weird and annoying and that's often where a lot of teachers drop off i think when when they try this because and again completely understandably so because it's something that the kids aren't liking they're not responding well to and it doesn't seem to be seem to be working but i think once as you say once you get to the point where the kids realize why it's happening realize what their role in it is and then start to see some results in terms of they're grasping things perhaps that they haven't grasped before or they're getting through work quicker and so on or what's also really nice is if they can predict what you're about to do before you've done it and then you can almost make a big thing of that then that's like wow okay I've, I've seen before he or before Miss or Sirs explained something to me, I've, I've predicted what's going to be on the board. That's then particularly powerful um, for, for the students. But you're absolutely right. It's um, yeah, it's it, it's not an easy one to to embed in the long term, I think. And I think um, oh, we're back on. you talked about sort of stepping away from that sort of silent narration and almost and I feel I sort of describe it as coming out of character a little bit when when that's delivered. And I think for some of those longer problems where we might be looking at sort of longer multi things, that's really key as well, almost as a kind of bring everyone back to you. And, yes. kind of, you know, it's like if you lose them early on on that mime, I call it a mime, you, yeah, you've yeah, lost yeah. them for that experience. But if you, yes. if you stop and you pause, I think it's understanding the nature of the problem that you're dealing with and being able to go, right, is everyone here? right i'm going i'm going back now and then you go back into that silent mode and i think it's it's just about a training yourself but training students as well to, to know what to expect isn't it yeah there's non-verbal cues are so important aren't they that's that's what it's about it's 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 about that aspect of it and your team are, are expressive about how they do that as well aren't they matt dave you're being very patient come on you're far too polite, aren't I? No, um, Craig, I'm listening to that and it's just um, sort of brought back into my mind um, something that I do when I'm modelling as well. And, and that's, since I started being silent, I wanted to find other ways of communicating. So those gestures uh, are definitely uh, really important now. The pointing, the pausing, how long I pause for uh, when going through an example and, uh, and making those connections maybe with my pen. And it's taken me into using colour as well. Mm. So, so it's not just highlighting now, but there's really specific reasons for particular colours through my examples. And that's helping me to communicate as well. So it's finding those other forms where the, the students can really focus on what's going on without um, that sort of that audio alongside, which can uh, be more um, difficult to, to take in all at once. Um, and I know you said then about um, at some point we could talk about the silence going through the examples. It'd be really interesting at the end of this to talk a little bit about that. But, um, but when I was um, modeling these worked examples and you're talking about the reflection side of it, something that I've really enjoyed doing off the back of your book is to find the links between the worked example and the your turn. Yes. So for example, um, one that's worked really well today with my year 11s was an area factor question where I'll give them a, um, an area. And then I, the autumn was just simply doubled the numbers and I asked them to make their prediction beforehand look what's happened and oh, we realise it's maybe not what we were expecting to happen. And, and so if you think carefully about those links as well, I found there's, there's so many places you can get a slightly deeper understanding throughout the lesson. It's almost like that sand between the pebbles, isn't it? And, um, and so, so, yeah, moving on to sort of that variation theory and that silence in, in the lesson now, that's become 
so much more important for me because again i want them to be able to fully focus i want to as the expert in the room to be able to direct them to um to pieces of of knowledge uh, when they need it um and rather than that maybe peer conversation it's become a lot more in my classroom that, that we are going to work in silence so we can concentrate and very sort of carefully designed periods of time and then periods of time for us to have that reflection process which again i'll, I'll be managing more than maybe i would have been doing five ten years ago so, yeah. so I don't know what your thoughts were. Yeah, just just a, a couple of things there that, that I find particularly interesting. So first, just just going briefly back to um, the, the notion of worked examples, it, it amazes me how bad I was and how little thought I gave to to examples for for literally twelve years. It was it was the part of my teaching that got the least. Um, attention. All I was interested in was the task, the activity, the actual modeling of a process or procedure or whatever. That was like, oh, I'll just make that up as I go. That'll be fine. Sometimes I didn't even know what example I was going to do, or I certainly, I certainly had never planned the steps I was going to use to solve it because I, I just solve it the way I solve it. And then we'll get onto the interesting bit of maths. And I, I can't believe that. Now that, that feels like the single biggest change in my teaching. The, the more careful thought I give to the early stages of a student being introduced to an idea or, or a concept. So starting with the word example and then moving on to the se carefully sequencing the, the, the practice questions the students give. For, they, they've gone from something that they got the least attention to now they get the most attention. And I, I fully believe that spending time thinking about them and spending time helping students develop the kind of mathematical behaviours that allow them to, as you say, notice relationships between the, your the, the work example and the your turn, and then be able to have that opportunity to form an expectation, to reflect on that expectation and so on. Spending time building those processes and these behaviours in. I think then allows students to get the most out of the tasks that come later on, the rich tasks, the problem solving and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, so I just wanted, I wanted to make that point first and then just moving on to just kind of silence in general, whether it's, so we've talked about silence when the teacher's modeling a worked example can feel weird, but also in many classrooms, silence full stop can, can feel strange. And there was a poll on Twitter, maybe, I, I don't know, a week ago, 10 days ago, something like that, about whether it's whether it's you would mind if the kids were were just talking a little bit whilst they were, they were getting on the work and I think the way the poll was phrased was you're in a classroom your kids are working hard but they're just doing a little bit of off-task talk whilst they're doing it is this a good thing or a bad thing and I would say hands down if you'd have asked me that any time in the first 12 years of my career I would have said that's absolutely fine of course it's fine it's the sign of kids who know how to work hard um, but also can, you know, can be having a chat, they're having a good time and so on and so forth. But now I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not fully in the camp that says all off-task talk is bad, but reading some of those um, comments in the thread that follow, particularly by, by Adam Boxer, who's one of my kind of favourite educational thinkers, he was saying like something along the lines of, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if the kids have got kind of attention left to dedicate to, to thinking about something that isn't the work or the example, the example's not hard enough. The work isn't well, you know, as well, well thought through enough. And I think 
that's why I want to give the opportunity for kids to to work in silence for, for, for certain sections whilst they're working through particularly intelligent practice or problem solving or whatever it may be. I'm, in the extract from my book that um, you, you kind of sent through as the focus here, I just reminded myself because I completely forgot I'm, I think I come up with these points. I actually quite impressed myself here. I thought well, that's quite a good point. That. So I'll just I'll rattle through the, the reasons that I gave why silence working through is quite a good thing. And, I'll, and then I'll just expand on, on, on a couple of these. So the, the obvious one is silence allow students to concentrate without distractions that it's so obvious but it's a, it's a really important one and I know the kind of model of working memory and cognitive load and so on gets gets crucified these days but I still think that there's, there's something really really kind of sound in the argument that says if you want students thinking really hard about whatever, the, in my case, the mathematical idea or any subject, well, whatever the kids are kind of focusing on at the time, you want as much of their attention to be on that as possible. And it just, for me, seems so logical that if there's other noise going on in the classroom that isn't directly related to that idea, it can only cause harm because the kids have to either filter it out, which is effortful, or attend to it, which takes their attention away from the task. So, Periods of silence, however long they may be, and we can talk about that um, in a second, feel to me to, to, to surely they've got to play some, some important role in, in, in the classroom. Um, I like this silence encourages students to think, to, to, uh, think before they ask for help. Again, we've all taught students whose hand just goes up straight away the moment they get stuck. So again, building this culture where, no, actually, you're going to be in silence, not for a long period of time, but are you going to be in silence for a bit? Just, just start thinking hard yourself. And again, just having that get out clause that, of course, if the kids having an absolute nightmare, they can stick their hand up and the teacher will come around. But saying your first your first port of call should be to think for yourself. I think that's a lot easier to do if the class is in silence than if, if there's kind of talking going on uh, left, right and centre. I'll just skip down to the uh, next one on my list here. Um, this is, I think this is an important one here. Um, silence stops students and teachers being fooled by the illusion of collective wisdom. This is only something that came to me whenever I was lucky enough uh, later on in my career to watch a lot of lessons. So I'm very fortunate, uh, well, pre-COVID pre anyway, I got to see, you know, hundreds of lessons each year. And it's, I've never learned as much as, as when I, I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to watch other teachers teach, whether they're NQTs, whether they've been teaching for 50 years or whatever, I always learn something. And this illusion of collective wisdom was something that I would never have picked up in my own teaching because I love paired work and I still do like love paired work. But if the kids are working with somebody and they solve a problem, then it's very easy to assume that both kids would have solved that problem independently. It's very easy to assume that both students understand how to solve that problem or answer that question. But, you, but there's no way of knowing. The kids don't know and you don't know. So it's this illusion of collective wisdom where, you know, paired work, group work is absolutely fantastic. It certainly has a, a core place in the classroom. But particularly if we're talking about assessment for learning or we're trying to get a gauge of how well our kids understand something on their own, allowing them to always work together and collaborate has this problem of this, this collective wisdom um, issue. Um, I think this is, an, I keep saying the same flipping thing, yes, I'm very cocky. I think this is an important one uh, as well, but very few of these ideas are mine. It's just, just me kind of curating them. Silence helps students make the connections at the point they are ready and not when their neighbor's ready. I, again, this is, this is something I've seen, just witnessed when I've been lucky enough to, to just sit back away from having to think about teaching myself, but just sit back and observe what's happening in the classroom. And you, once you're aware of this, you see it all the time. And that's this notion that two kids are working on the problem and one of the kids says, oh, I've got it, the answer's 17, or I've got it, you've got to divide both sides by this. 
and that forces the neighbor the, their partner to get 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 to that point of understanding at that stage and they might not have been ready yet they may have been sowing the seeds but they're kind of dragged along and i don't think it's been dragged along in a useful way it's it forces them to rush through their thinking and it, you, you see this on a wider scale whenever you do a lot of one-to-one -one questioning in the class where you put a problem up on the board okay who, who knows what's the first step to solve this anybody know uh, jess what do you think if jess knows what it is well, everybody else better catch up quick to Jess in terms of their thinking, because we're already ready to move on. Whereas providing these moments of silence just allows everybody to make the connection at the point that they're ready. And of course, some ki kids are going to need support, kids who haven't quite got there yet. Of course, they're going to need support and scaffolding and so on. But just providing, even if it's just a few seconds, for kids to get there at the point they're ready feels really, really, really important. I'll just pause here. So we've got a hand up because I'll just prattle through this list uh, all night. So I'll shut up for a sec. No, I just I just wanted to jump in off the back of that. I, I, I so I'm not speaking for everyone else, but I can't think about how many variation tasks I've had where someone excitedly is exclaimed, "Oh, we need to do for the next thing is divide by two. And yes. And then and then twenty people suddenly have, have jumped yes. in that thing. And and I find I introduce those tasks very often. You know, my classes sort of work in silence, but I'm I'm always introducing them by saying, "As excited as you get, if you spot anything, you keep it to yourself." And I feel like yeah. that's a prerequisite for nigh on every variation theory. But I actually just wanted to ask almost about the, the next step, if that's okay. Um, and it feels silly in, in, a, in a session about silence to ask about noise. But in, in some, the later bit, you talk about that paired discussion that kind of happens yeah. as part of that reflection. Yeah. And I just wanted, I guess, to pick your brains a little bit about the training, I think, that's probably involved in terms of the students for that, to get them to, to really reflect and to talk about those things so it doesn't become a, you just divide by two, or did you know yes. this one multiply by 10, or that sort of thing. And I think particularly for myself, that that's probably missing at the moment of getting them to articulate properly those reflections. So I'll, yeah, I wanted to put your brains on that. Yeah, so, so it's a brilliant question. Um, and again, I can only speak from my own experience and specifically from my mistakes I, I've made with this. So the, the first thing to say, you're absolutely right. If it, was, if it was silence all the time, it'd be a disaster. And it's this notion that silence allows the it sets up the paired discussions to be as productive and as interesting and as enjoyable as possible. If it's paired discussions all the time, then we have all the problems that I've spoke about, kids potentially not being able to concentrate, moving at the same pace as each other and so on. Whereas if we allow these periods of silence, then when the paired discussions come, the kids are ready for them. They've got questions, they've got work to check, perhaps they've been stuck and so on. And if they know, and I speak about this, I call it the 4-2 approach, four minutes of silence, two minutes of paired discussion and cycle through that. That feels to me just about the right balance where four minutes of silence allows kids to make enough progress that they've either got work to check or questions to ask. And then two minutes of paired discussion feels like a constrained enough amount of time that the kids realize that actually we best make the most out of this discussion. Otherwise the time's gonna tick away and we're back to being silent again. Now that four two can be flexible. And I'll tell you that the first time you do this four minutes feels like four hours because again, the kids aren't used to it. They're getting stuck left, right and center. But four two feels like about the right, right amount. But that, that to come to the main point um, is that even if you do all that and the silence works well, the sequences, the best design sequence in the world, the kids are the best behaved kids in the world that two minute discussion can still fall flat on its face because the kids might not know how to communicate mathematically. And this is really important. Again, 
I start the majority of my sentences I start these days are the mistake I used to make. And again, because I've made so many. Well, one of the big mistakes I used to make whenever it was time for kids to discuss is I'd just say, okay, talk to your neighbor about that problem. Or now it's time to discuss. And I was making an assumption there that kids knew how to communicate like mathematicians. But of course they don't, or the vast majority of students don't, or they certainly can, can improve on it. So again, just like anything, I think they need support. And I provide in the book just a series of prompts that I tend to either project up on the board or better still, they're printed out and they're either stuck in kids' books or wherever, just so they can refer to them. And I say to the kids, these are not a script. You don't have to read the first line and ask that question and so on. But if you find that during your discussion, you're just struggling for something to ask or talk about, just ask one of these prompts. So it, it can be as simple as, did we both expect the same thing? Were any of us surprised by our answer? Or, and I, this was one of the later prompts to come to me because I witnessed a lot of kids who'd, they both got the first four questions right, let's say for example, they both expected the exact same thing to happen, they both had the exact same reason behind it, so, so what on earth have they got to talk about? And that's when they start kind of potentially going off task, but that's where you can just ask a simple prompt like something like, where do you think another student might get stuck? How would you help them? What might be some of the wrong expectations students might make and how would you support them? So I think, again, it goes back to exactly what you were saying about silence. If once you've cracked that routine, then it's introducing this other routine of, okay, when we're discussing, this is how we discuss, these are the kind of behavior expectations, this is the time constraints, and if you're stuck, here are some prompts. And then we can do things like, we can obviously role play it. We can, we can model a discussion with one of the students, or as we're walking around, we perhaps might hear something, a really good discussion going on and we can stop the class and say, oh, I've just heard something absolutely brilliant over here and so on and so forth. But I think the biggest mistake I made in terms of pupil discussion was not supporting the students enough in their efforts to discuss something mathematically with their, with their partner, if that makes sense. No, it makes absolute sense. How, how can they be expected to discuss mathematically when we haven't helped to be explicit and, and to structure that for them and help them to do it? And, and one of the things that I, I wanted to reflect on with this as well is with the copious notes I made, but from a learner's point of view, I remember in my A-levels, we had such a strong study group between us and we would talk about things and I thought I was amazing and then I got my assessment results and I realized actually as part of the collective I was doing really really well but as an individual I had no ideas of where my blind spots were anymore because I was so used to being yeah, part of yeah. this group yeah. and then from that point on trying to force myself to get used to working in silence and working on my own and, and trying to process things myself. So because of that experience, I'm much more mindful of that for students. But then I also found silence difficult, especially when yes. as coming through university, it was all about discussion at that point. But and I like the, the way you structure it in your book as well. And we're talking about strategies for people and, and how it's so real. And for me, I had to retrain my own routine. So I was comfortable with with allowing that silence for my own silence and and giving it space to to breathe and, and the importance that it that it has in the session. So I would set a timer on my watch to yes. make sure that I was quiet for long enough, 
because silence tends to bend time as well, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more with, with, with your things you've said there, Rhiannon. And it made me think as well, the, the, the other thing, and it's, it's related to what we've said there, but if, if silence becomes a regular, well, if, if silence isn't a regular part of kind of classroom practice, then what's the only time kids are silent? It's in high stakes tests, whether it's the end of unit test or whether it's, you know, worst case some GCSE or end of year exam or something. So then that adds to all the anxiety. Oh God, we're silent, so the pressure's on and so on. Whereas if silence just becomes something that kids do that's, that's normal, whenever they're silent in the exam, at least that takes one element of the kind of anxiety-inducing environment that exams can create away from it. So yeah, the, the, more I, the more I read about silence, the more I think about it, the more I think it needs to play an integral part in lessons. But as I say, it's one of those things that's very easy to, to, to kind of twist or take to the extreme. And a lot of my critics think that well, they think that I don't say a word and the kids don't say a word and we all just have a great time and then leave but yeah there's fingers crossed there's a little bit more to it than, uh, than that Dave you've, you've your hand up again it's very good zoom etiquette this I am I am very polite um I, I'm listening to all of that and I'm just um and I, I think the prompts are absolutely brilliant I think uh, they're the sort of thing which I will have up in my classroom and, and I was I think I was memorising that, so I don't have them on my walls with a cognitive load. But, um, but I, I really appreciate that as a teacher as well to be thinking, um, what could I be asking the students? Because um, they work very well for the students, but yes. sometimes I will struggle with, well, what is it that I can ask to get the very most out of the response from from the students that are sat in front of me? And those prompts are just absolutely brilliant for that. Um, I know that we're coming towards the end of the session now because uh, we'll be finishing at half five and doing the takeaway very soon. Um, and it's just been an absolute pleasure talking to you. But there's one question, it's a bit, a bit more of a fun question that's coming through from one of our teachers at our school, um, Sarah, who, who was um, really interested in, now that you've written the second book and then potentially you might be thinking sort of forward, uh, whether there's anything in the book that you're, you're reflecting upon now as in, oh, that's how I taught it let's think 10 years time and we look back at this book what sort of things do you reflect on and think well maybe I'm changing my mind on that or is there anything that you think um at, at the moment that you've written about that you maybe would um, reconsider or, or or might have challenged your thinking yeah it's, it's a really really good question so as I said at the start one of the big advantages of writing the first book how much I taught myself when I wrote it was then I could embark on 18 months of just learning and seeing the book out in the wild and seeing how teachers interpreted it and so on and so forth. The, the disadvantage of this book is, as I say, that the world shut down whenever it came out, hopefully not related to the book's release, but obviously I've not been able to get in as, in as many schools. I've, I've seen, whilst I was writing the book, it was brilliant because I was still teaching at my, my school in Bolton part-time, but then I was also had a couple of days a week when I was um, every week in different schools either all around the world or in very different environments within the UK. So what I could do then is, I, let's say I've just written a sequence on Monday, I could try it with my kids in Bolton on Tuesday, and then I could try it in an inner city school in London where the kids had never done anything like this on Thursday. And then I could try it in some fancy leafy school where the kids, you know, are all on for grade nines on Friday. And I could observe what worked and what, what didn't work. So what I'm really looking forward to is because I, I, again, of course, I learned stuff for that. And I tried to, that's where things like the prompts came from because I, they weren't in there originally when I was first writing the book. But then I realized, no, the kids need support on this. No. And then, the teacher pumps, the teacher needs support on this. So it was only through my observations that I was able to think, what, 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 do, the, what do the teacher and the kids need? What I'm really looking forward to doing, and fingers crossed when, when the world goes back to, to a bit more normality, is 
going into schools and watching teachers try and use the sequences either from the book or on variationtheory.com teachers that have sorry sequences that have been written by me or, or shared by you know far better teachers all around the world and just watching them use them with their kids what is it that they do that makes it work for them do they do they have a really good way of introducing what they're doing do they have do they change the timings a bit well how do they use silence how do they use prompts what is it that they what do the kids write down how do they bring it all together how does group work work how does paired work work so all this stuff that i can only speak from my experience i cannot wait to then go around and just see and like i did with how i taught math just see what 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 makes these sequences work what makes the kids engage with them what makes the kids see the connections and i'm sure fingers crossed what will happen is that i will come away from that with a load more ideas that will then inform how to get the most out of these sequences now whether that is another book i, I i'm out of ideas now by the way you know there are times when I think I never want to write another sequence of carefully varied examples again in my life. I never want to do another flipping worked example full stop. In my head, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm all out of ideas. But again, I think that's because I've not been lucky enough to go you know, into, into schools a lot. And that whenever you sat in your office, you know, you, you're, you don't have that spark of creativity. I don't have that inspiration. So I fingers crossed as soon as I'm lucky enough to start working with, with kids all around the world again and teachers all around the world, then hopefully then the, the ideas will start flying again. But as of now, my writing career, I think is, a, is at an end, but we'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens next. Well, um we hopefully then there'll be opportunities for you to get more inspiration and get back into the classroom just because of how invaluable um what you've written and what you shared has been because it's real it's it's a, it's the experience that we are living all the time and it's like it's the permission for us to be able to talk about it so openly and not and and, and not feel so bad for being fallible Mm. and learning and expecting ourselves to to know it all right at the beginning so um thank you so much for all of that um i don't know matt um are you ready for this next bit now it's so much even on 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 that section about silent teaching and silence in the classroom there's still been so much involved in this session and i know that um the work that the work that we've done in schools and we do in schools is based so much around around your your work and what you write and everything you do craig so thank you for that one so are you ready for your takeaway matt i am i, th I think there's there's two issues with this first of all it's remaining sort of coherent as i as i try and wrap it up and it and if i if i am to uh summarize everything that's been said that i think has value then you're in for another hour of me sort of regain my notes so uh, i'm going to try and sum it up really really briefly and, and but first of all just want to say a thank you to you craig but also b thank you to rhiannon and dave for again putting this together and and i know there'll be plenty of people listening to this where you know it's completely invaluable and it, and it pairs nicely craig with your own podcast and your own writing as well as kind of a companion piece to that so thank you to everyone i've been a very sort of lucky sort of passerby for this session so it's been really really nice um so to summarize and i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it concise um i've kind of picked up on three things and the first thing is, is around the importance of silence because that's been the main thrust of of what we've talked about today and i think the key sort of element of that don't assume that through silence you've achieved the goals that you've set out to do and therefore that process needs modeling both for yourself and for the students as well but it also probably needs communicating and i think that's really important for anyone who's sort of thinking off the back of reading the extract of the book or listening to this session that it needs communicating with students probably with parents and with with other members of staff as well both within and sort of 
without your team but making sure that that, that process is, is fully explained um and i think it's really important as well to not fall into some of the traps that we talked about with silence i think it's silence isn't passive um achieving silence doesn't mean that everyone's working really hard and so there are those opportunities within your own modeling to stop and to scan but also to talk about with some of these discussions that some of those students can have as well my second kind of point is one that we touched on briefly in the middle but i think it's really really important so i think it's worth sort of mentioning again and that's the, the choice of examples i echo absolutely everything you said around the thrust of my probably early experience of teaching being around what resource am I going to use? Um, what is the activity that I'm going to do? What, what am I going to get those students working on? Um, and now 95% of my thinking and my department's thinking is around what models are we using? What examples are we using? How are we communicating that? How are we not communicating that? And, and why have we chosen those, those sort of pairings? And I think that's absolutely crucial to, to anything that, that then follows on for that silence. Because if that bit is wrong there's a discrepancy then between the next bit and then it, you set yourself up to fail if, if that's not there and uh, and again in, in a session of silence and my third point is about the noise and i think that's the the prompts in your book are, are great and and we've sort of looked to include them in powerpoints and those sorts of things but i think again almost with all of this don't just assume it's going to happen uh, i think it, it's training it's scaffolding it's modeling it's making sure that you're communicating everything that you're trying to do to, to train the students i think one of the lines in the extract talks about uh, practice making permanent. All, all three of the things that I've, I've mentioned there, they need practice and they need constant reviewing and doing to, to make sure that they happen. And, and Dave, you started the session by talking about, you know, the books essentially are there to give to what we're trying to all do really is to, is to get students to understand maths more deeply. And, and all of these things are catered towards that and, and that's the thrust of everything we're trying to do and th these are opportunities therefore to do that but we can't we can't make them gestures despite me talking earlier on about the actual gestures in your thing but they they need to be things that are really worked on and you can't just stand in silence and work through a problem and expect it to happen you can't just write up your models on the board last minute because you know how to do it and you can't just expect students to be able to talk mathematically so uh, that's kind of my summary the last thing i'll say is if you ever want to visit a school in the southwest i know uh, we might be amused for any later any later <laughs> books but uh, i'll just add that in there and that's me done thank you are your lunches any good that's always that's how i choose schools what are your lunches oh, they're like? the best they're the best what did yeah. you have? What have you had this week? Give me loads, one. loads of lovely food. Yeah. Okay, all loads right. You've, you've sold me on the dream that's, of that. That's it. Yeah. I'll order in. <laughs> and just before I, I say bye bye myself as well, just uh, well, thank you very much for the kind invite. As I, I was winding Joe Morgan up for a while, because I was fuming that she'd been invited and I hadn't. I thought, what have I done here? Well, what, what have I done wrong? So I'm very, very honoured to, to be invited. And again, we, we can do a bit of a spoiler alert because uh, Dave and Rihanna, uh, hopefully, if they still want to, are going to be joining me on, on my podcast to, to reflect on what they've learned from, um, from, from the year or so now the, and the wonderful interviews you've been doing. What, what are the key kind of takeaways you've got from the wonderful guests that you, you've interviewed? Because I think it's an absolutely brilliant project, this, and I'm uh, very, very pleased and proud to have, uh, be a very small part of it. So thank you very much for the kind invite. Thank you so much, Craig. And um, we really appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, I, I, just before I close and, and stop recording, was there anything else you wanted to say, Dave? 
No, no, no. I'm uh, just to, again just to say thank you so much, Craig. I think there's uh, there's plenty we can talk about about what we've learned in our on our sessions. I think today's is another one um, that we can talk about as well. Um, but I just really, really appreciate you taking the time to to sort of come and talk with us, share your expertise because every time we get to talk to people like yourself, um, it just makes us that little bit better at what we do. So it's so just a massive thank you to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much.